I recently read a book on dementia, which apparently is more relevant than I realized. But the, the title of the, the first chapter of that book is, It's Bad, But It's Not That Bad. It's bad, but it's not that bad. And when it comes to dementia, there are real losses, right? There's all sorts of things that are difficult and painful or frustrating or frightening about it. But he also argues in the book that some really beautiful things persist. It's bad. It's not that bad. And I think that's a good phrase that describes just a whole lot of things. There's a lot of things in life that are mixed. It's not all good. It's not all bad. It's some mixture of things. And I think that phrase describes our passage this morning. We've been in a series, if you're new here, we're we're studying through one of the letters in the New Testament. It's known as 1 Peter. It is the first letter that we have of two from Peter, who was one of the leaders of the church, to the early church at that time. And the reason that we chose this, that I chose this particular book at this moment is I think it's going to be uh, maybe the most relevant book of of all the epistles, all the letters in the New Testament for us going into this next generation. Um, And I have been, I've been seeking to warn you for weeks and weeks um, that as the culture churns, and as we go through maybe one of the most rapid kind of changes in, in a sense of what is good and what is kind of the true, the good, and the beautiful, our definitions of what is true and what is good and what is beautiful is changing perhaps more rapidly than any other time in American history. And I think it's very likely. I, I mean, who knows? I don't, I, don't, I don't have a crystal ball. But based on the trending of things, I think it's quite likely that in the next five years or the next 40 years, the cost of Christianity is going to rise. That we will become increasingly a despised minority in the United States. And that's bad. But it's not that bad. Okay? It's actually normal. It's normal Christianity. And what the New Testament talks about over and over and over again, and in particular in Peter, is this reality. And so I feel that it's one, one of my most solemn obligations that I feel personally is just to kind of help us as a church to get ready for it, to be prepared for as the world is changing. It's already changing, but we need to be prepared. What does it look like to be, if I'm right about that, if we are the despised minority, what does that look like? Um, how do we prepare? But the preparation is different than you might think. I'm not saying so like, you know, buy more bullets, okay? We're not saying get ready for a fight, Peter's vision of what it looks like to be the ones that are, that are despised and hated is not to be ready for a fight, but is to be ready to be unspeakably gracious and long-suffering, patient, kind, in the midst of unjust suffering. We're not gearing up for a fight. We are preparing to be a people whose hope is set fully on the world to come and not on this. Now, this passage we're going to look at here. Uh, we're going to look at First Peter three, verse thirteen through I don't know something, something else. We'll find out. We'll tell you. You'll know when we stop. But First Peter three thirteen, and it is, um, it's very pointed. It's very much relevant to what we're, what I've just my opening remarks. But it also contains probably one of the top five weirdest passages in the entire Bible. Maybe top three. You might, you might even give it number one. There's a very strange, very enigmatic, like, what on earth are you saying here passage? And we'll get to that. But before we get to the weird part, we're going to look at, like, the stuff that's clear. Not easy. It's bad. Not that bad. Okay? Um, but, and then this, the, the weird stuff, this, like, what on earth are you saying? It has to make sense 
in the context of this first chunk that we're going to look at first. Okay, so we're going to understand the passage here, and there's a general principle of Scripture that you always use the clear passages to help you understand the unclear passages instead of the other way around. So we're going to talk a look, take a look at what's going on, and then once we kind of have that loaded in our brains, we're going to ask, okay, what are you talking about in, in part two? Okay, so part two will come in a second. We'll start just with part one. Here's what he says. This is 1 Peter 3.13 and following. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? By the way, what's the answer to that? Lots of people, right? Exactly. You're like, nobody. No, wait. No, actually, lots and lots of people. He says, even if you should suffer for what is right, then you are blessed. It's bad. It's not that bad. All right? You can do this. Do not fear what they fear, and do not be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it's God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Okay? That's not, we haven't, we, I haven't read the weird stuff yet. Weird stuff's coming. That's just the hard stuff. Okay? Now, I think you've seen it before, that suffering is a major theme throughout 1 Peter. Um, what have I said is the primary notion of Peter? What's, the, what is the, what's our soundbite takeaway from 1 Peter? Aliens and strangers. We're aliens and strangers. We're aliens and strangers. And that has a couple of implications to it. One is, because we're aliens and strangers... We're going to be uh, maligned. That's just, you make fun of the weird kid. That's just what happens, right? As long as we're the weirdos, that we, we have a different value set, a different set of ethics. We define the true, the good, and the beautiful differently from those around us. That makes us weird, okay? And because we're weird, what that means is as we, as we suffer the strangeness of being strange, we are also especially weird because we respond to that unkindness differently. The normal thing is you punch me, I punch you back. They pull a knife, you pull a gun. That's just normal. But we're not normal. So it's our, our strangeness will call, lead us to suffering, and our strangeness will cause us to respond to that suffering in very different, different ways. We are to be a patient sufferer, a gracious sufferer. We are the innocents who suffer and are inexplicably kind in the midst of it. That's what Peter's saying. Okay. Now, if you flip back through Peter, in fact, I'd love you to do this. This idea of being an innocent sufferer. Just flip back to chapter 2, um, because it's not, it's not new. We're going to do a real quick survey. We're going to look at chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. So limiting yourself only to chapter 2, where do you see Peter? It, it, it shows up over and over and over again. Where does Peter discuss the innocent sufferer motif in chapter 2? Give me a shout out when you find one. Okay, what does it say? So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all... Okay, so now this is half of the equation, is that we put away all these things. The, the things that would be in your normal tool bag when you're being attacked is like you're just going to like punch them right back. So we put it all away. It's, not, it's like it's not an option for us. That stuff's all away. So that's like how we, how we respond is exactly right. There's other places where it's going to combine the two things, the innocent and the suffering. Where else do you see that in chapter 2? Okay, what's it say? Who said it? John? Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are... 
Absolutely, right? So he frames this whole context of slavery, which is the ultimate in disempowerment. He's like, in the midst of this thing, what you are to do is to be like the most generous, hardworking work as if you're working for the Lord, even when those that disempower you and treat you unjustly are unkind and cruel. Okay? Where else? Chapter 2. 13. Don, give it to us. Yeah, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every. Right. So total submission, even to the bad ones. Very good. Sammy? What do you got? Living stone which is rejected by men. Yes. Joys and precious of God. So Jesus himself is that living stone. And he is the one. He's, by the way, Peter's going to refer to Jesus a lot in this letter. Not just because he's Jesus, but because he is the most innocent of sufferers. And he is the most suffering innocent one. Right? It's all over the place. Brad? 19. What do you got? For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of Right? There it is. It's commendable. It's the right thing. It's what we do. Unjust suffering, and we just, we bear up. All right, good. Any more in chapter two? Yeah, Chris? Chapter three, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Excellent. He trusted himself to him who judged. Very good. And once again, Jesus is the example par excellence of unjust suffering, patience in it. Okay, one or two more. There's a bunch. There's still more. Yeah, Kelly Sue? Twelve. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. There it is. We're living such good lives. We are killing it. And nevertheless, they accuse us of doing wrong. And so we don't say, well, what's the point then? We keep doing it. It's just the theme of the book, right? I think the only one that I noticed that you guys didn't mention, verse 20, maybe, I don't know if somebody said this. How is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong? Did you say, is that what you said, John? If you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. Okay? Now, bringing it into chapter 3, we're just going to continue the survey because I want you to know I'm not making this up. It's, it is what the book is about. Chapter 3, what do you see there? <coughs> doing good, still suffering, and keeping to do good. Where do you, where do you find that in chapter 3? Verse 1, what's it say? So for wives, even if their husbands aren't uh, following the word, that they will be won over by their good conduct. Okay, very good. So that's, you're, you're kind of, um, you're teasing that out a little bit, but this idea, well, what if you're, similar to like, you know, if you're in a situation where you are the disempowered member of this thing, what do you do? We just are unspeakably kind. Very, very good. Where, was there another hand? Yeah. Go ahead, Jason. Verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for, for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for this you are called, so that you may obtain a blessing. That's right. Very good. It's everywhere. Was there a voice over here? Cat or somebody? No, no, no. How about this? Verse 14, we suffer. Why do we suffer in verse 14? For doing right. Right? Verse 16, people speak maliciously against what? Good behavior. You're like, well, this, this doesn't flow. Good behavior doesn't lead to malicious, but it... It will for us. That's what he's saying, okay? Verse 17, once again, they suffer for doing good. And then verse 18, of course, is just one more reference to Jesus as the greatest example in human history of this phenomenon playing out. It's everywhere. It's chapter 2. It's chapter 3. It's chapter 4. Go to chapter 4. I'm going to kind of steal my own thunder for future weeks. Just scan it real quick, and we'll grab a couple more. Where do we find that Christians take the hit and we're gracious in response. Jason? Verse 1, it says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way. That's right. 
He suffered. Get ready. Strap in. And it's okay. And again, he didn't prepare himself by getting ready to fight. He prepared himself by saying, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Excellent. One, two more. Verse four, they malign you for not taking part in their debauchery. That's right. They think it's strange that you don't plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation. And they heap abuse on you. If you don't go along, it's going to be like, it's going to get ugly. Verse 12, he's like, you guys, don't be surprised at the painful trial that you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. This is, this is important because you have, we've lived most of our lives in a very protected cove. And if, this be, if, if my predictions come to pass, and I don't think they're terribly risky predictions, and this feels very strange, we're like, what is up with this? I don't like this. I want to fight to prevent this. Peter's answer is, well, why do you think this is weird? Like, do you know who your leader is? Do you remember anything at all about how Christianity came to existence? And should it shock us if our lives increasingly look like his life? He's like, why, do you, why is this weird to you? Like, this, is, this has been the deal from day one. The fact that we've lived in this weird little moment, notwithstanding, this is normal Christianity. How about else? Anything else? Chapter 4 you want to grab? Yeah, go ahead, bro. Yeah, the next verse, verse 13. Very good, yep. Rejoice. Yep. And it, I'll, so I'll read it for you, Herrick. So rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. All right? We can keep going. Verse 14. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed for the spirit of God, spirit of glory, and the spirit of God rests on you. Verse 15. It's even more, right? If you suffer, it shouldn't be as all these bad things. But if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. I mean, it's over and over and over and over and over again. We should expect to suffer, okay? So, that's what the book is all about. That we should expect that normal Christianity is costly. And then when it's time to pay the cost, we pay it. And we pay it cheerfully and patiently and faithfully. And our lives are not marked by a retaliation and an, and an insistence on avoiding pain. Which is really weird because my life is generally speaking about an insistence on avoiding pain. So this is weird. Bob? Think of the irony that the author was, what his reaction was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Who's the one that grabbed the sword? It's like that was not reacting. Yes. Years later, he's probably thinking back, oh, I didn't quite get, get it right. Right. Isn't that so fascinating? So the guy that's writing this book is a guy who knows all about, he's fully versed in the way that we are feeling this very second. Right? So... When he, when he hears this, he grabs a sword. He's like, you come at me with a sword. I'm going to grab a sword. He whacks that guy's ear off, right? And when he's like, Peter, it's time for you to suffer because you're associated with him, he's like, I've never met the guy, right? So his starting point for all of this is he, believe me, Peter understands the longing to avoid pain. We see just even in those crucial moments the lengths to which he would go to physically attack a Roman soldier, to deny he's ever even met. Can you imagine for Peter? Like, I've never... Heard him, right? So he's come from there all the way around to an understanding of, oh my goodness, this is what we're called to. And so I think that we might, we might recognize that in our own lives, that perhaps we've got to build up to that. Perhaps we need to get ready to bear small unjust suffering so that we'll be ready to bear the greater ones, right? In the same way that Peter developed into this, so we must as well. Okay, make sense so far? That's what the book's about. That's what this paragraph is about. And now 
with, oh, one more thing. What's, there's a weird line, there's a line in here. What's the most famous line in that thing that you've probably heard quoted? In fact, Quig quoted it this morning. Um, in that first section, there's one statement that kind of gets ripped off the page. What is it? Uh, say it out loud. Uh, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. That's right. Right. So it's always be prepared, and NIV is always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. And that shows up in like every evangelism class all the time, right? So there's one thing that we love about that verse is that it's a little bit passive. It doesn't require an initiation in evangelism. It's like, I'm going to wait, and then when somebody comes up to me and says, man, what is up with your life? Can you please explain to me the reason for the hope that you have? And our job is to be ready when that moment happens, right? What's the problem with that? (laughs) Nobody ever asks, okay? Well, so, but why don't they ask? Why has nobody ever said, I cannot make sense of your life? It's so extraordinarily hopeful that I must know your God. Okay, why doesn't that happen? Okay, so here's the thing. It might be that we're not doing it, like we're being, we're being sissies, or it might be this. The context in which Peter is discussing this is not really the context in which you have generally lived your life, right? He is, he is, he's talking for people who every day at the office, they are ridiculed for their faith. And every day at the office, they're kind and gracious and cheerful. He's talking about someone who gets lambasted, but they don't respond with insults. He's talking about somebody who loses their job because they refuse to affirm falsehoods that are becoming compulsory speech. And once they lose their job, they remain cheerful and hopeful that they have some transcendent trust that in the midst of real, actual suffering, um, they live such baffling lives that somebody finds, okay, what is it? What gives? Explain yourself to me because I don't know why you are so remarkably hopeful and gracious and trusting and forgiving in light of what's going on here. This makes no sense to me. So what do you, what do you know that I don't know? That's what Peter is talking about. Peter is saying that there is an incredible um, apologetic value to hopeful, unjust suffering. But we don't realize that value unless we are hopeful, unjust sufferers, right? So to a certain extent, you can be glad that nobody's ever asked you that question. Because it probably meant something really painful was in your life. But that's the con. The whole thing is like the gospel grows and the gospel changes when Christians clearly have a secret when we know something that the rest of the world does not know that enables us to be the most gracious people under the most difficult of circumstances that has persuasive power because if you have that i want it to make sense that's what he's doing okay now with all of that in the backdrop now we get to the weird stuff and the clock is ticking so we got to like race through this okay ready for the weird stuff You've heard this before and probably don't know what it means because it's so weird. Okay, verse 18. Jesus was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. What? In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of the dirt from the body, but the pledge of good conscience toward God. 
It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers and submission to him. But I repeat, through whom Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. What is he talking about? <laughs> like, what is he? Like, there's, there's a handful of theories. What, what is it? And this is, this, is, this is the ultimate. We're allowed to get it wrong on the way to getting it right. Okay, so let's kind of tease this out. What does it mean that Jesus went and preached to the spirits who were in prison in the days when the Noah was building an ark? Da, 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 da. What, what does that mean? Or fragments of it or theories you've heard, whether you agree or disagree with them. What do you think that's about? It's reminding the people of what they knew. They knew of the ark. They knew of the heritage. It's reminding them of Okay, so he's reminding them that there was this, this whole thing with Noah and the ark. That, that's true. Okay, yes, so there's some, some, that's great. So he's reminding them there was this whole thing where like there's a, a sweeping judgment and some were saved. And there's probably, it's not, we can, we can kind of tie that back into this. It makes sense why he might talk about that. We'll, we'll kind of make all, build all that together. What do you think it means that Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison? Any idea what, what that is talking about? Okay, so purgatory, so meaning, so, so maybe the spirits in prison are humans who are in purgatory, and Jesus went and said something to them. Okay, or fallen angels. Okay, great. So is this some purgatory, is it fallen angels? Stuart? Well, in, in uh, Genesis 6, you know, he talks about the, uh, the, son, the, the, the increase in the number of the earth and daughters. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they were married, and da, 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 that whole thing. Super Nephilim weirdness. I'm like, well, that's weird. You know, what is this? They're impregnating the daughters of the earth and all that. I mean, is this a reference back to them? Okay, great. So Stuart is, so in case it's not weird enough already, Stuart's going to raise up this issue going on in Genesis 6, which is where you would go. If you want to understand the flood, the flood was Genesis 6. Noah's told to build the ark in Genesis 6. But also in Genesis 6, you guys, there's this super weird story where it says that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they went and had children by them. And the, these children, these offspring, this hybrid of, quote, the sons of God and the daughters of men were what, what are called the Nephilim, these giants, these, like, massive, you know, humongous, powerful beings. And you're like, okay, what do you mean by sons? Like, is it, is it even biologically possible? Can, like, can some... Can, a, can, a, can an angel or a fallen angel, if that's what a son of man means... Is it possible to have like the biological system to impregnate a human and then to have some like crossbreed? Hap- what, is that what that means? Or the sons of God, like those are the good guys and the daughters of men are like the bad guys or is it vice versa? What is it? Who are they? What? I guess Genesis 6. Okay, so we'll come back to that in a second. So thank you for making it stranger. Um, Kat? If I can read from the message, it explains it pretty Okay. He went and proclaimed God's salvation to earlier generations who ended up in the prison of judgment because they wouldn't listen. You know, even though God waited patiently all the days that Noah built his ship, only a few were saved then, eight to be exact, saved from the water by the water. Nope, that's great. So here's the thing. So the message is... um, 
the message is wonderful. Do you guys know Eugene Peterson? He kind of he basically did like his own translation, but it's, he's not. A, it's more of a transliteration, meaning he's kind of like putting it more in the vernacular. The problem with every translation is you make some interpretive decisions. So he has intentionally cleared up some of the ambiguities in, in accordance with what he thinks the passage means. And I think that I'm going to disagree with him on the way he's. The, the direction he falls on some of the ambiguities. But yes, that's a common idea, is that what this means is that for some reason, Jesus went back to all those that died and were in hell. There's two, there's two levels of hell, right? There's this intermediate, there's, there's like there's two, two levels of heaven. There's like this waiting time, and then there's when Jesus comes back and there's a resurrection. There's also this intermediate state for the lost. And there's this, this idea that they go back to this, this dungeon, this place of holding, and Jesus goes and he offers a second chance. So there's some kind of um, respite from, from judgment post-death. That's the direction that you, Eugene has taken that. Kat? The way I see it is in the, in the past, it's not saying he went, like right now he went back, but speaking in the past tense, he did back then, he went. Like in the original moment? Okay, and here's one of the problems, and that, that could be what it means. It's not what I think it means, but it could be that this means that Jesus went, he specifically adds the word salvation to that translation, which isn't, which isn't, in the, isn't actually in the text. That Jesus went and he preached the message of forgiveness and mercy and second chanceness to that generation, which raises the question, why that generation? Like, why that in particular? And the text doesn't actually say there's salvation. There's no other passage in Scripture that suggests that there's a second chance. So there's a lot of problems with it, but there's problems no matter what you do because it's a really weird passage. Here's what, let me, for the sake of time, let me tell you what I think is going on here. First of all, it says this, uh, verse 19, through whom Jesus also went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now, if you look up that word spirit, the, the Greek word spirit there, it shows up 375 times in the New Testament, 375. One time, it's about human beings. Every other time, it is about either the Holy Spirit or angels or fallen angels, demons, right? So it'll be like Jesus uses it like this in Matthew 8. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with the word and healed all the sick. Uh, Matthew 10, he called the 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out the evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. I think it's fair to guess that he's not talking, in, in Peter, he's not talking about the Holy Spirit. When he went and he preached to the spirits in prison, that's not the Holy Spirit. It's not the Holy Spirit. Based on the way the New Testament uses the word, I think the preponderance of evidence suggests that it's not humans. It's not dead humans who are in some holding tank. But it is, it's demons. It's fallen angels, or who, who that is. Okay, so first, spirits. Kelly Sue. Isn't it, isn't it Peter himself and, and Jude, I think? You'll have to help me. Who refers to the fallen angels as being kept in, in prison, including the darkness. Absolutely. And so this and that's particularly relevant because this is Peter, first Peter and second Peter. I think he's kind of giving you a hint. Yes, I think it's, uh, Kelly's exactly right. So we're in first Peter. Go over to second Peter chapter two. And in 2 Peter 2, Paul talks, or not Paul, Peter talks about this exact same phenomenon. It's precisely what Kelly just said. So if you go to 2 Peter 2, um, it's going to say, we'll pick it up in verse, verse 4. So listen to this. It says, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, and those are demons, those are these spirits I believe that we're discussing, but sent them to hell, hell is a bad translation there, it should say it's Tartarus, but he, he sent them to Tartarus, putting them into gloomy dungeons 
to be held for judgment. So just like if we ask the question, well, if, if my claim is that these spirits are fallen angels, they're demons, does Peter ever say anywhere else that like these, these demons are held in prison? The answer is yes, he does, right here. And as Kelly also said, Jude, if you read Jude, which only has one chapter, Jude is a direct parallel to 2 Peter 2. If you read them both, you'll be very obvious to you that somebody is plagiarizing from somebody. Okay, they're saying the exact same thing. He talks about this exact, he talks about it as well. If you go, th- we won't do it for the sake of time, but he walks through in Jude, it's the same idea that there is, that, that the spirits are held in prison. They're held in gloomy dungeons. In Jude, he says they're held in eternal chains awaiting the day of judgment. And then one more little interesting little parallel um, in the passage that Kelly's referencing in 2 Peter 2. His next line is, verse 5, and if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. And then he kind of goes on to describe this concept that God is perfectly capable of holding the bad guys and bringing a judgment on them while rescuing the righteous. That he, he does not send an indiscriminate fire that just burns everything down, but he can be laser-guided in his judgment. He is able to preserve those that are faithful while punishing those that are inflicting agony on the faithful. That's what he's saying in 2 Peter 2. It's also what's going on, I believe. Ultimately, we'll, we'll, we'll glue it all back together, but it's what's going on in 1 Peter. Kim. Okay. So these, um, these demons, spirits, that are in these gloomy dungeons, yep. reserved for judgment, what about the spirits, the demons, that are not in gloomy dungeons? I mean, we know that there's, you know, there's the prince of this world, the prince of the air that has, and there, and there are demons. Yeah. Not right. So Kim is at. So so Kim is saying that there. It seems like some of these demons here in First Peter or Second Peter in particular, very clearly, are being held in dungeons. But not everybody's imprisoned, and I think that's accurate. That when Jesus is on the earth, there are demons that are clearly not in prison, and who in fact beg him, like, "Hey, don't send us into the abyss." You know, the whole thing with the pigs. They're like, they don't want to get out, and so the the amount of biblical information we have on kind of the fallen angels is really very, very scarce. Um, and I have no, I don't know why these ones are imprisoned and why those ones aren't, unless it's possibly this. And this is, this is a 25% guess, okay? This is like, maybe, maybe not. But what's curious is the one, the, what, what, what Peter is talking about, if you go back to First Peter, is a specific group, a specific population. He's not describing all demonology, all spirits, but a specific subset. So it might be the case, and again, I don't know, right? I don't know. But it might be the case that the only ones that are imprisoned is this particular subset, which would be the ones that Stuart brought up in Genesis 6. It is possible because I I absolutely think that what Peter is referencing in 1 Peter chapter 3 is Genesis 6. This is the event that he's describing. So let's go to that. But it's very, very strange, and I don't, I don't, I don't certainly know. Yeah, you want to you add something? Revelations 9, 14, where it says, uh, The sixth angel who had the trumpet uh, said, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And also in Revelations 20, there's also the angel coming down to the bottomless pit and... Uh, seizing the dragon and the ancient serpent and then releasing them for a short so bound like binding angels is something that doesn't it does show up you're absolutely right so this we have we see multiple places um where where some of these fallen angels these spirits these demons are bound um 
So I don't think there's any question that that is true. It's just that I don't happen to know, like, who's out on bail and who's in prison. I, I, I don't know exactly. Unless, possibly, it's that what, what Peter's describing is simply the, these ones from this Genesis 6 thing. Now, let's, so let's look at Genesis 6 for a moment. It's so, so strange. I already explained to you what it is. My, my normal impulse on this would be, to be, would be to, like, make it as normal as I possibly can. To say, this is saying that, like, you know, there are some good guys and there are some bad guys and... Maybe the good guys started dating the, the girls from the back. Who knows, right? But recently, I have come to suspect that I'm wrong, and I just have a bias towards the normal, and I don't like weird supernatural stuff. Um, it might be just exactly what it sounds like on face value. I don't know how it could be and why it would be that, that there would be male angels that have, like, sperm. Like, why would... What? I just don't know. But... The narrative reads as if, and then there's a fair, Kelly actually was reading about this recently and studying some of this, and uh, so Kelly, do you want to give like a 30 second riff on, on this, on the plausibility of it being just as weird as it seems? Uh, this is, most of this I learned from the Bible Project. They have a video series called Spiritual So go, go louder. The Bible Project guys have a video series called Spiritual Beings, so I'm just trying to riff on what they riffed on. So um, the idea is that uh, you know, the creation fall flood, right? So in creation, God created man in his image. The image of God, he created them. Us. Knowing full well at that time that the fall would come and God himself would have to create himself in the image of man to be man with us. God with us as a man. Jesus. And the Bible Project guys make a point that when the fall happened of mankind at the same time, that was when the fall of the heavenly realms happened. And that's when the angels fell, the heavenly beings fell. And so, knowing the angels were fallen at the same time that man fell, and knowing the angel, the heavenly host, God's staff, he calls them, probably knew ultimately the plan would be for God to come by the seed of a woman to bring us the Savior, the Messiah, the Son of Man, Jesus. They would thwart that by sowing their seed among the men on earth to corrupt the line of man so as to somehow corrupt the future plan of God's redemption. And therefore, at the times of Noah, all the earth had become wicked because all of the men, meaning humanity, had been corrupted by this demonic, angelic presence that basically sowed their seed. Yes, okay. So, isn't that strange? Okay, now. <laughs> and, uh, so, yes, yeah, so for the sake of not going down that trail too long, if you are interested, so I'm a the Bible Project, I think they're incredibly trustworthy, like incredibly so. They do a fantastic job. Um, it, this thing is called Spiritual Beings. Is that right, the series? <laughs> but, but, but if they just go do a search for um, Bible Project Spiritual Beings, will that hit it? Well, that's the video. That's what I mean. Yeah, if you want to watch the video series, it's the Spiritual Beings series. But they go in depth on this in their podcast. Yes. And it's, uh, it's the God, it's the Who is God. Okay, Who is God? Okay. The series is super long. Yeah. So, so. It's 45 minutes long, and I think it's called uh, QA on the Spiritual yeah. Beings Demon. Okay. So, just to capture, so Bible Project is very reliable. This sounds like such a kooky, nutty thing, but these guys are. These guys are rock solid, okay? And so they did, they did a series of these little videos. They're like five-minute videos. If you just go to Bible Project, 
Search for Bible Project Spiritual Beings. You can find that series. That's great. But they also do a deeper level podcast where they sit around and talk about it. And it gets far more, it's a little more academic. And they unpack this. You could chase those things down. Um, it would be a fascinating week if you choose to do that, I think. Okay? So now, having said all that, one more, one more clue and then we've got to wrap this up. Last clue. Verse 19, Peter says, through whom also he, that's Jesus, went and preached to the spirits in prison. And then in verse 22, also that Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand with angels and authorities and powers in submission to him. Those are the same verb. He went and he was gone. In Greek, it's the exact same thing. And I think he's describing the same event. What's going on in verse 19 is going on in verse 22. So the preaching to the spirits in prison parallels to what happens in verse 22, which is that he has gone into heaven with, listen to this, angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. They're the same thing. When he goes to them, it's not, I don't believe that, he's, that he went to this to Tartarus, to this temporary holding tank of judgment uh, to preach a message of salvation to dead humans. I don't think that's what it is. Rather, he went to this temporary holding tank of judgment that is embodied with fallen angels to say, I win. They are in subjection to him. He has dominion over all of them. And that's, what, that's all that Peter is referring to. Okay. Now, with that said, whatever it means, whatever this weird thing means, has to make sense in light of the first chunk. Right? It has to make sense. It has to be consistent with it. It has to be supportive. Because, in fact, Peter uses, he uses connective language here. But as he picks it up, he says, um, He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits who imprisoned, uh, to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago. All that he's saying here is in support of what he just said. And so here's what I think he just said. Listen, guys, it's going to be hard. They're going to speak maliciously against you. You're going to do a good job, and they're going to judge you. And they're going to speak maliciously against you. But stay the course, because you're going to win. We will be the triumphant people. So you can be as gracious and kind and forgiving, as patient as the day is long, no matter how miserable it is, because at the end, the victory is sure. And in support of that, he does this double tap. Number one, there's Noah. This whole thing, remember, is framed in Noah. And he's reminding us, he's going back to this moment where Noah was like the one guy on the whole planet that was faithful to God. And he builds a boat in a landlocked country filled with wickedness. He's talking about the days. He's not talking about the flood. He's talking about the days when the boat was being built. What do you think it was like to build a boat in the middle of a landlocked country Filled with people who think you're an absolute idiot. Was his life filled with scorn day after day? We're talking decades. This was a big boat. And he didn't have a lot of help, okay? Scorn, mocking, ridicule. Are they showing up and like, you know, lighting it on fire and he's got to rebuild sections of it? I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised given what we know about the people that he's surrounded by. And yet, he was faithful and he stayed the course. And, of course... He survives. That when the floodwaters come, he's the one, he and his family, the eight of them, are the only ones that survive. Right? He's reminding us, yeah, you're not the first, you, we are not the first generation to live surrounded by people that don't like us very much. Right? And we are to be faithful in that moment. Not only that, but that's the only one. The second tap is Jesus himself. Because Jesus is the one, when he goes, he, is, he faces all spiritual forces of hell arrayed against him on the cross. Throughout his life, 
and in his, in his final week of his life that we're about to commemorate and in the cross itself. But when it's all said and done, he goes to those, to this demonic realm, and he is in absolute dominion and power and authority over all of them. And it all works out. It is bad, but it's not that bad. For he will reign and he will be the righteous one. And so I think that what Peter is telling us is that just what happened to Noah, we should expect to happen to us. That just what happened to Jesus, we should hope will happen to us. Because he is victorious. Does that all make sense? Okay, last, just one last little weird thought, the way to think about this. There's one, one more strange phrase and then we're done. It says in verse 20 that Noah and his family were saved through water, or you might have saved by water. And that's weird. Because what did the water do? Killed everybody. Like what saved Noah? The boat, right? But think about this. Think about it like this. The ark saved Noah from the water. But the water saved Noah from the people. The world was purged. And the wicked were, were cleansed away, and he was saved. And that fits perfectly in our context. You guys, life will be hard like Noah's life was hard. It'll be hard like Jesus's. But just as Jesus was raised in absolute triumph after enormous suffering, and just as Noah was saved from those that were attacking him through this flood, through much scorn and through a boat, we too will prevail. And therefore... We can be kind, and we can be gracious. And in fact, we should be sympathetic even to our accusers because whatever badness they are doing to us, if we believe the gospel, we believe that far worse things are happening to them or will happen to them. So we don't need to return insult with insult. We can be gracious and kind. We can implore them to come under the mercy of Jesus and be rescued just as Noah was rescued. We can be patient sufferers because we know how the story ends, right? And Peter, it ends specifically with Jesus reigning in triumph over everything. The angels, authorities, and those that are in power are all in submission to him. And I just think it's crucially important that we as people grow in our ability to do that. We need to be prepared to show radical, non-retaliatory love to a world that increasingly despises us. Because we know the end is All right? All for now. See you, friends.